1: Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.
0: Hello, welcome to the Longform Podcast. I'm Aaron Lammer. I'm here with my co-hosts on this program, Evan Ratliff
1: and Max Linsky. Hey, Aaron. You guys, I'm in a very old house, and there's a very (laughs) creaky door. So if you hear that creaky door, it's not a ghost, you guys. It's not a ghost.
0: There's a frozen image of Max on the screen right now. He's in sort of a uh, grandmotherly bedroom, uh, is how I would describe it. Uh, And he's going to be trapped there forever because he was uh, lured into a sinister vortex uh, (laughs) somewhere in upstate New York.
1: Are we turning this into one of those horror fiction podcasts?
0: Yes. If there's one thing I've always wanted to do with my career,
1: it's to get into horror podcasting. (laughs) Um, Who did you uh, just do a normal long-form podcast with this week? I did
0: a normal, regular old long-form podcast uh, with someone whose work I very much consume almost every day. Uh, Matt Levine. uh, He is the uh, author of the Money Stuff newsletter, which Bloomberg puts out. Uh, it's kind of like where I know everything I know about, uh, wall street and finance from I've, I've read it for many years. A lot of my friends read it and I talk about it with them. Um, I, I, we get into this interview, so I won't like step on it here, but one of the things that is notable about this newsletter is that this newsletter is thousands of words long and comes out in the first part of the day, uh, every day. Uh, about news that uh, has occurred often less than 24 hours ago. So I wanted to talk to Matt about the production of this newsletter, how you actually get something uh, like that out, and and how you uh, have the longevity uh, to continue doing so every week uh, for a decade.
1: What a grind, man.
0: What a grind. Much like we've been doing this show every week for almost a decade. (laughs)
1: And we only have to do like every third show. Yeah, yeah, it's really, uh, it's the soft weekly uh, that we have going on here. We should also mention, listeners who pay close attention will know that Evan has done not even an episode every three weeks for several months because he's been working on a podcast, and it came out this week. It's called Persona, the French Deception. The last time I looked at the Apple podcast charts, I believe it was at number four. Whoa. It's climbing those charts. People should go and listen to it. Go subscribe. We'll put it in the show
0: notes. Could our audience be the ones who push it from number four to number one? I think they could. Tell a friend.
1: People for years have been talking about uh, what I like to call the long form bump, and uh, I think this is—I think this is the moment. This is the moment for Evan to experience the long form bump.
0: Let's uh, let's say the name of the show again so that uh, people can find it in their podcast app. Evan, what is the name of this podcast you made?
1: The show is called Persona: The French Deception. Basically about one of the biggest, certainly the most creative international scammer of the 21st century.
0: That's really all I all I needed to hear to uh, want to listen to this program. I haven't I have not heard it yet. I've been uh, my my two co hosts have uh, quietly both uh, uh, done some some labor on this one. Uh, one of my co hosts a tremendous amount of labor, and uh, I'm very very excited to hear it. Uh, We're brought to you in partnership with Vox Media, who help us produce the show. Thanks to everyone
1: at Vox. And now here's Aaron with Matt Levine.
0: Hello, Matt Levine. Thanks for having me. I've wanted to have you on the show for a while. And every time I think of like asking you on, I then like get your newsletter in my box and I realize you were probably busy that day. You're you're a difficult person to think about when you might have a free day to come on a podcast.
2: I get asked on podcasts most often when I'm most busy writing, you know, like everyone wants to have, have me come on to talk about Elon and like, you know, the days when Elon is doing stuff are the days they want me on and the days I'm writing about Elon. So it's hard to do. Uh I feel like this is a little different.
0: Yeah. So like I get your newsletter in my inbox. Is it five days a week it comes out, I want to say?
2: It's like more like four. It used to be five. It's gotten a little more relaxed.
0: If I don't uh, note what day it is, I would have thought it comes five days a week. And your newsletter is, I would say, generally like in the four to five thousand word range, like a magazine feature range. Is that that accurate?
2: It's long form. Yeah.
0: Um, As we are talking, it is 10.05 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. Have you already written a newsletter today?
2: Uh, the secret is today I'm not writing. Sort of like a summer Fridays kind of thing.
0: <laughs> so th- in some ways, this uh, encounter would be impossible if you were writing a newsletter today.
2: I do sometimes do things in the sort of mid-afternoon, but no, it's tight. It's tight. Because like, the newsletter ideally comes out at noon and frequently does not come out at noon. And so if it comes out at like two, that means I'm working frantically until two. And then starting at like four, it's pretty much picking up the kids' time. So. There's like a tight window on most days when I can like do anything other than type in a box. But uh, but some Fridays I'm not writing and so I have a little bit more time.
0: Okay, so knowing that you've got like a shot clock that goes off uh, like mid-morning most days, take me through your thought process as you like first come to consciousness and that shot clock starts ticking, sort of looking
2: at the panorama of stories choosing what you're going to write about many days the good days i sort of like kind of know what the first thing is going to be like the night before you know because of the way the clock works you know like uh i publish it whatever noon a little later than noon and uh and then like news keeps happening and so by you know four or five or midnight i have some idea of like oh like this thing happened that i'm gonna have to write about and i often have like sort of initial thoughts about it and sometimes even write at night, you know, and, and have something written. Um, those are, those are more relaxing days. Not that they're relaxing, but that like, you know, at least, at least like I reach a certain point during the day or sometimes even the day before where I'm like, oh, this will get done, you know? And, uh, and some days that point comes pretty late and it's kind of terrible. Um, when I'm like, I don't really have anything to write about, um, at like you know, 11 o'clock. Um, so that's hard. Uh, but no, you know, I wake up, I like, you know, look at the front page of like Bloomberg and the Wall Street Journal, look at my email, look at my Twitter, sort of, I've been sort of doing it long enough that I have some sense of like, what I, like, what are the things that I should be writing about? So like, when I see a news story, I'm like, oh, that's a me news story, you know? And then I um kind of go from there. Like, I mean, the the process is sort of collating stuff and then kind of staring at it and like, getting annoyed or inspired by something and sort of typing a few paragraphs. And I'm often, you know, like the newsletter has, you know, three to five sections that are sort of different stories. And often I'm kind of writing them simultaneously and I get bored of something and I move on to something else and I move back and kind of juggle between them. Taking the ingredients of one of these sections,
0: there's the uh, what happened part of it and there's the like, what I think about it like there's the like let me get catch you up to speed about what this is so that then I can also give you some level of a take about it are those takes like cemented when you start writing or are you sort of discovering what you think about a topic as you write about it for the first time
2: it's more the latter well it depends i mean like like one kind of ingredient in like the efficiency of of doing this is that like there are some topics that are like me topics that are topics that i sort of write about periodically and news stories either prove or undermine my sort of long running point so like you know if there's like an insider trading story like i kind of know what i think about insider trading like oh here's an example or whatever you know or like i have this long-running sort of quasi joke that everything is securities fraud where like when a public company does something that doesn't sound like securities fraud and they get sued for securities fraud and that keeps happening and I feel like I feed it a little bit like I feel like I write about it and like lawyers read it and like oh I should sue this company for securities fraud and so like there keep being those cases and I keep like that's an easy one to write about and I don't really frequently you know have much new to say about it but it's like part of the long-running shtick um you know it's interesting like you say there are two ingredients I actually like some of these things like there, I think of there being kind of three ingredients, which is like beginning with a sort of like general conceptual framing of like some aspect of like the financial world where I can be like, this is how, you know, lending works or, I don't know, whatever. And then like in the middle, there's like, oh, and here's a story, which is often, you know, the best way for me to like tell you what happened is often to like block quit three paragraphs from like a news story or whatever, because then I don't have to you know, summarize it. Um, And like I'm not, you know, I'm not a reporter. Like I'm not like if someone else sort of accurately and clearly describes what happened, then I love to quote them. Um, And then like you know, the third part is like the take or whatever. But it's like tying the the like general conceptual framing to the uh, to the event that happened. And those are the most satisfying, and often those are ones that I kind of wake up and, and write that day and do kind of figure out what I think as I write it. And like often, like like those are the most satisfying because like I wake up like with like a new story. I'm like, oh, here's a new story. And then I'm like, how do I write about this news story? It's often like, let me take a step back and think about like what, like how, like some element of finance works at like a deep intuitive level. And then I kind of figure that out, you know, or like I understand it better to my own satisfaction as I write it. And then I'm like, oh, and here's this new story that sort of illustrates that or whatever. Like, yeah. And those are, those are the most fun, you know, in general, I, I, I sort of come to the it's it's a mix of like whether I come to the takes as I write them or whether I look at a story and I'm like ah this is obvious um but the fun ones are the ones where I'm sort of discovering something as I think about how to write about it
0: I I agree with you actually that there are, are three ingredients and in some ways that zoomed out like what is lending thing is maybe the most distinctive part of like I can identify your prose without your name on it.
2: Actually, um, someone on Twitter recently made fun of it in a, in a way that like, like, I, like th- I have a tick where I like write like five paragraphs of like conceptual, like thinking about finance. And then I say anyway, and like have like four paragraph block quote from a news story. Um, it's just become a tick, but it's also like, I, I don't know. I, I really like that. Um, even if I stop saying anyway, all the time, like I, I like that, like approach of like giving people like a sort of broad, almost like philosophical like introduction to to some concept and then being like, and here's a new story.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think most people's assumption is that finance there's a perception that there is this complexity to it that is somehow above the head of the uh, lay reader. And your writing often gives me the feeling that this is like, simpler than people um, make it out to be. But in some ways that is sort of the success of the writing as you've been doing this like newsletter for years and years, how have you sort of calibrated like the sophistication uh, knowledge of the financial industry and like interests of the audience? Like how much are you thinking about how is my audience going to read what I'm writing?
2: It's hard because like, there is a subset of my audience who is more expert on everything I'm writing about than I am. And certainly there's a large subset who are like just financially sophisticated, whether or not they know more about a specific topic than me, they are, you know, hedge fund traders and and investment bankers and whatnot. And they just, they know a lot. Um, And then there's another, I don't really know the numbers, but like maybe a majority of my audience is smart people who are not quite like that. Um, It's a lot of like tech people. And, the way I think about my audience now is that they are like smart and are interested in, in sort of like structure and in like understanding the like processes and mechanics and economic intuitions of things. And I just like empirically think that that is what my audience is interested in. Some of them because they're finance people Uh, who are interested in that stuff and some of them because they're like non-finance people who are for whatever reason like aesthetically interested in that stuff like the thing you said about like like there is this perception that finance is like inexplicably complicated and like you know I was a derivatives banker and it wasn't an like you, you like you could do it like you could take a 22 year old and be like this is how you do this thing right um and so it's not that hard you know but like I think that like there are people who have always been external to it, right? Who, are, who, like, come to it in journalism without, like, ever having, like, kind of worked in it and who, you know, there are a lot of, like, professional incentives to, to like, make it look complicated and hard and opaque, right? Because for one thing, it's like, a you know, I'm a financial journalist. I'm so smart because I'm covering these opaque derivatives that no one can understand, right? And then for another reason, it's like, like, an easy take to have about anything in finance is this is bad and scammy and uh uh i try not to have that take too much you know a lot of things are bad and scammy so like you know like it's, that's why i take like 30% of the time but like i try not to be 80% of the time uh and uh and like i don't know i mean like I, I came into this job in you know i mean i came into like financial blogging in like 2011 and like the dominant mode of like writing about finance in 2011 was like these banks are evil right because it was like the fallout of the financial crisis and like occupy and it was just like uh it was just anything that a bank did you be like oh this is why it's evil right um and like in particular like opaque derivatives are evil and like everything a bank is do- doing is like hiding something because like that was kind of the experience of the financial crisis and uh you know like i was like a derivatives banker who left to be a blogger and i was like well i'm not like hiding anything i'm not evil uh and so it's just like uh the thing that i wanted to do was not repeat to you that everything a bank does is evil but it was to sort of like explain like the economic intuitions behind some trade that like everyone else was like this is evil i'd be like oh no this is why they're doing it it's actually a tax, tax dodge right so a lot of time it's like kind of evil anyway but um uh just to like sort of explain what's going on because it seemed to me that like people working in finance were rarely like rubbing their hands together and cackling and being like, let's do some evil. And like, they had some reasons for doing what they were doing. And just like explaining what those reasons were, w- was like a useful addition to the discourse that like was kind of not, not being done by a lot of other people.
0: I'm kind of interested in this, like um, all finances, evil, like uh, sort of general journalistic take, which, which I actually think is, probably less strong now than it was in 2011
2: oh yeah i mean and that's you know because of the world you know and also because like um i remember when i was a banker I, i i covered oil companies and at some point i forget what we had done but we had done something bad and i went to visit an oil company and they were like thank you for taking the heat off of us right and i think there's like an element of that in the world today where like is Goldman Sachs the enemy? Well, there are these other enemies, right? Like, there are a lot of, a lot of people who get mad at before you get mad at Goldman Sachs, right? Whereas in 2011, you got mad at Goldman Sachs.
0: Support for long form this week comes from listening. If you find yourself behind the eight ball, needing to read a bunch of academic papers or journals or any kind of dense reading material, you might make your life a lot easier by checking out listening. It takes anything, articles, books, PDFs, and turns the text into spoken word that you can absorb no matter what you're doing. The app has a lifelike AI voices complete with emotion and intonation that creates a realistic and pleasant listening experience. So I had to go into the city for some meetings. I needed to review some PDFs, threw them in there, listened to them on the way, it was both pleasant and I kind of forgot that I wasn't like listening to a professionally done audiobook or something. Like, very quickly, the voices sounded totally natural and human to me. This listening app might just transform how you consume reading material and you can give it a shot yourself risk free. Now, normally you get a two week free trial, but listeners of long form get a whole month free. Go to listening.com slash longform or use the code longform at checkout listening. Your life just got a lot easier. Fox Creative.
1: This is advertiser content from 26.2 Team Milk and their new docuseries, Running Sucks. Is running the worst? Yeah. Do you love it? Do you hate it? I hate it so much. (laughs) I hate it so freaking much. That you're a real runner now! I hate it. (laughs)
0: So you're quoting a lot of business journalism like inside the newsletter. So in some ways, the sort of overall like coverage of Wall Street does like filter down into your newsletter. How much do you find like you are at odds, say, with um, some of the more like antagonistic towards the finance industry reporting that comes out and sort of as someone who's not a reporter, when you are trying to tell your own story, which maybe has a different take on the evilness level of things, what are you looking at and and what are you sort of bringing in as data and reporting into the newsletter?
2: I will say like, like one sort of general, like starting point is like, I have been in this like quasi journalism business for like more than a decade now and i do feel like i've been like acculturated to journalism where like you know i work in a newsroom and like i have friends who are reporters and uh um but uh i mean the main answer is like like i'm not in the business of saying this isn't evil you know like like i'm not like taking a side against like another side that is like this is evil i'm i'm more like interested in explaining what is going on and doing that in a sort of neutral intuitive way i mean like there's a story about um, aluminum warehouses. That's a few years ago. There's like aluminum that trades on like the aluminum exchange, like the London Metals Exchange or whatever. Like the, the trades that happen on the exchange reference aluminum that basically sits in like a series of like warehouses that are like designated. These are the warehouses where the aluminum that you trade sits. And uh, people got it in their heads that the, like Goldman Sachs or someone was um, was like manipulating the price of aluminum And making beer more expensive. And so there are these stories that are like beer is more expensive because of aluminum manipulation. And there were these stories in the press that were like, Goldman puts the aluminum in the trucks and drives them around the city and then puts them back into the warehouses to make your aluminum more expensive. And I was like, well, but how would that work? Like, how would that like how could that make the aluminum more expensive? Like, what is going on here? And so I eventually like figured out like how the sort of warehousing system worked and like what the like like why sometimes aluminum sat in these particular warehouses where it was more expensive to put the aluminum and why sometimes it sat in different warehouses where you just like because like the thing about like the story was like the warehouses are so expensive that now your aluminum your beer is more expensive it's like aluminum you can just like put in your garage like you can just like you can leave aluminum anywhere like if if like the beer companies uh can't afford to pay the aluminum storage fees they can just leave the aluminum on the ground so the story didn't make any sense but it was like a story of like oh banks are evil and i didn't like write banks are not evil actually they're doing really good stuff with your aluminum i wrote like this is what the deal with the aluminum is this is like why they're paying these fees for the warehouses and that was a complicated thing to figure out sort of like it's it's like not intuitive why they do it but like you can eventually sort of tell a satisfying story of like in order to trade like these, these sort of like abstract aluminum futures contracts, you have to have a sort of reference set of aluminum that sits in these warehouses that are like bound to like deliver into these future contracts. And like the, the, the price gap between like just any old aluminum and aluminum in those warehouses can vary. And it's not a story of like a vast conspiracy to make your beer more expensive. It's a story of like market structure. Uh, so I don't know, like that's what I like, that's what I do. You know, I try to like explain like it's never like someone writes these bankers are evil. And I'm like, actually, these bankers are noble people. It's always like, well, this is what they're thinking. Like this is how they're trying, like, this is like the thing that they're trying to do. And so, and like most of the time, that's like maximizing their own compensation, right? But like in a context of like if you just like lie to people and steal their money, like eventually you have to stop doing that, right? It's so, like there's some they're doing something that they think adds value or that someone thinks adds value or that is something other than just like cackling and being evil. Yeah. I mean, you see these
0: dynamics a lot in, uh, I mean, I apologize to all the listeners to the show for me constantly driving everything to crypto, but look, Matt also talks a lot about crypto. So it's a place of overlap between us here where someone will say something like all NFTs are wash trading. It's all wash trading. There's no real buyers. And the idea is kind of, this is so stupid. No one could be really doing this. And I'm like, What if the truth is people really are trading the monkey JPEGs? That's just as weird and entertaining and potentially like disturbing about the world. Uh, It doesn't have to be like fake for it to be interesting. And it doesn't have to be like all a a facade. Uh, It's unlikely to me that any of this stuff is entirely like fake or entirely nefarious. It's more just sort of like a confluence of a bunch of, different human actors acting in self-interest and weird interest and interest in monkey JPEGs. I guess I was thinking about this because your most recent newsletter or one of the ones this week was about this insider trading scandal at OpenSea, which has now resulted in um, charges. And so just like unpacking that issue has like several degrees of depth about the history of the SEC and like what insider trading is. Do you feel at this point, like when you're taking on a story like that, are you sort of building on the like 40 other columns that have touched on insider trading uh, over the course, probably more than 40, honestly?
2: Oh my God, it's like 400. But yeah, no, absolutely. Like there are a couple of like topics that I kind of know from my former life as a lawyer and a banker. And then there are a couple of other topics that I've just like spent a lot of time on as a writer for 10 years. And first of all, like, everything I read about those topics builds on them but then also secondly like every so often they kind of like break through into being of interest to people and then I'm like ah this is like my time um and like for t- I, yeah I mentioned Elon at the top of the show but like Elon Musk buying Twitter like I was an M&A lawyer for a very brief period and I don't write a lot about like the remedies in merger agreements because like that sounds boring. And like, people are not like super, like when a deal is signed, people are not like, Oh, tell me how they can get out of the deal. Right. But then Elon signs a deal and everyone's like the most important news this week is whether Elon can get out of the deal. And then it's like really fun to write about that. Um, the GameStop was like that too. Like GameStop was like the biggest news, like not in finance. like It was like the biggest news story for like a week. Um, and things like how does Delta hedging of options work? Like that was my job for a while. And so writing about market structure was like boring and no one ever wants to read it. And like I do it sort of dutifully. And then like for a week people are like, oh, I really need to understand market structure because it was like this huge news story. So those things are fun where like the kind of like more technical dorky stuff that I write about like sort of breaks through into public consciousness. Is the
0: finance news cycle getting more entertaining? Like you've cited GameStop, Elon, uh, monkey jpegs. When you were doing this five, eight years ago, was there the same number of entertaining stories uh
2: per week coming out? You know, it's interesting. I mean I think the answer is yes. It is more it, it's stupider, which is like which is a mixed bag. Um like people get mad at me. They're like you used to write about like complicated derivatives and now you write about monkey JPEGs and Elon Musk. Um the the Elon stuff is all kind of real stuff where like I would have written about it five years ago if like some boring person was like contesting a merger, but like no one would have read it. Right. But it's Elon Musk. So it's like, fun.
0: and and just to be clear, I'm not saying entertaining with like scare quotes. I literally mean I wake up more and your newsletter comes out and I'm like, oh shit, the newsletter is about this. I really want to read about it.
2: Yeah. I think there's like, it's definitely true. I do think that like, I love crypto because uh, it's like crypto has like these like hilarious blowups. Um, like just crypto has found more ways to like make mistakes in like very schematic ways where it's like fun to describe it. And then like they, they, and then like, you know, and then the people are all like 23 and like, you know, edge Lords online. And like, it's just that every, like, every, like all the aspects of it are funny instead of like being kind of buttoned up and lured. I will say that like, I think about like my career and like what's been entertaining. Like when I started in like 2011, it was the fallout of the financial crisis. And there were a lot of like enforcement cases and lawsuits coming out of the financial crisis that I thought were really interesting and they weren't like entertaining exactly. Cause people were really mad. Um, and it was like, you know, sort of like the wounds were still raw, but, um, there was a lot of material that was, uh, you had a real window into like what complicated things were going on because like you could read these, like these complaints against like CDOs and whatever where like, a lot of like the dirty laundry was really getting aired in a way that I thought was really interesting and satisfying for like someone who wants to write about like, you know, complexity and structure and and in, in a way that I thought was pretty entertaining, but now like all the fun is in crypto and like, like it's very entertaining, but it's like you sometimes, you sometimes feel like I wish there was more here, you know, but I can't really complain. Um, like the GameStop stuff, like I, you know, GameStop was very entertaining. And definitely like raised my profile where like people were like, oh, come on like TV shows to talk about GameStop. Uh but um I never knew what to say about it because like there's nothing there. <laughs> you know, it's just like, oh, hey, these people bought this stock and it went up. Uh it 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 felt like like I'm I'm trying to be in the business of like explaining things in a like conceptual intuitive way. And I just I don't have an intuition for GameStop. And I feel like that a lot now. I don't really know what Elon Musk is thinking. I don't really understand why people want the monkey jpeg so much and so it's like it's entertaining but it's like it's like a little unsettling
0: what do you think about finance and uh trading becoming sort of an entertainment product like when gamestop happened people just like couldn't get enough. Like you would think that this was like uh you know uh feel similar to me to like sports or something like that. Like, oh what's the new storyline? What's on Sports Center tonight? I I don't really remember that interest in uh in finance and trading before. Um and certainly like crypto as a driver of it and like sort of the interest in retail trading as a driver of it. But like what do you make of that? And, and what does it mean for you as someone who makes a entertainment product on some level about finance?
2: Uh, yeah. I mean, like professionally, it's been good for me. <laughs> like, <laughs> um, uh, like I was like a dorky kid and like, I, I, like, I remember like reading like buyer's poker, like in high school or something and be like, Oh, this is really entertaining. Right. Um, and like barbarians at the gate too, which is like even considerably dorkier, um, I've always found it interesting. Like I've always found high finance interesting. And I think that like, there's like a long running cultural, like it's not like the main thing, but like, there's like, you know, there's like bonfire, of the there's a lot of like cultural interest in like, in high finance as a subject of, 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 of entertainment and interests. I do think that like the last few years has been like, like actually trading as entertainment. Right. Like, and I think that like the, there's a different character to that, that I, um, I don't love like I don't like I, I, I don't like I, I, I don't like all my money is an index like, I'm the most boring investor right like I sort of think like I worked at a place where like professionals like very seriously sat down and thought professionally about money and I was like I'm gonna leave that to professionals and I was like you know give my money to some professionals to like do their their professional money thing for me and the same that I wouldn't like you know pull my own teeth and go to a dentist. Like, I'm not gonna like do my own like trading. I'm gonna like give my money to someone who's a professional. And like five years ago, I would have said like, and I did say I wrote this for Business Week, that like that's just like the sort of obvious way things are going. And that like people are not it's not like particularly fun to do your own sort of financial investing and planning. And like that's just the thing that can be outsourced to a robot and soon will be. And then like nope totally wrong like uh everyone finds it to be the most entertaining thing in the world i do think like you know initially i was like explaining that i think it's i think there's a lot of truth to this that like that was a function of the pandemic where like you couldn't do a lot of entertaining things but you could um you could sit on your phone and trade stocks and they might go up right and i do think it's obviously a function of crypto which has like this real ethos of like everyone you know runs their own wallet and you know is responsible for their own financial life and I don't like. I don't like feel great about that. Like for the world, like I don't like. I don't think that that's a good development necessarily. And I feel like there are a lot of stories of people losing a lot of money, and there are a lot of stories of people making a lot of money. But that was like in a, in the context of a like you know broadly rising market, and uh, people seeing investment as entertainment feels like a step back for their uh, finances and probably also for entertainment because it's not that entertaining. But for me, you know, like people want to read my newsletter. It's, it's fine for me.
0: <laughs> Can we talk a little bit about your life before 2011? Sure. Before you started waking up every morning and writing four to 5,000 words, four to five days a week, what were you doing? And, and I guess like going back to college, like what, what did you want to do with
2: your life? Uh, so I was a classics major in college. I was like a very unworldly college student. I like read Greek and Latin poetry and I was like, I'm going to be a writer with like no basis. Like I didn't write anything. I wasn't like like working on a novel or writing poems or whatever. I was just like, I should be a writer one day. Uh, And, um, but you know, I was also like a classics major. I was like, I'll be a, you know, professor of Greek or like an archeologist or something. And, um, there, there are like no jobs like that. Like there are like zero, um, Let's. So I I graduated from college and I um I like really didn't like look for a job during college, and sort of towards the end I scrambled and actually the chair of my department was like, this like high school in mean public high school you know nearby is is looking for a Latin teacher, so I I ended up teaching high school Latin for one year as a sort of like. Seeing if I wanted to do classics as a career, and I sort of was realizing that was a bad idea. And so I applied to law school, as people do when they get classics degrees. Uh, and um, I went to law school and I thought that a lot of the sort of like, like constitutional law, is like, I'll be a con law professor and I'll tell people why like, you know, the constitu- like free speech is good or whatever. And then I like went to law school and I was like, this is, this is kind of dumb. Like the like the intellectual content of that stuff is kind of just like, you know, you count the Republicans on the Supreme Court, whereas like contract law and mergers and acquisitions law was really interesting. So I the summers in law school, you like go work for something and and like the thing you might do after law school. And so I got a job at a firm doing MA law. And I was like, this is really fun. And like my summer experience was like I was like up all night like negotiating deal documents. And I was like, oh, this is this is like interesting. So I did that after like I clerked for a judge, which is like what one does. Um and then I uh, I spent a year and a half as an MA lawyer like writing merger agreements and like negotiating reps and warranties and like just sort of like we once had a deal where we were trying to sell this company and there were like two competing bidder groups and we had them in conference rooms on different floors of our office and we'd go to one group and they'd be like, this is our final offer, but you can't shop it to the other group or it'll explode. And we're like, we're going to the bathroom. And we'd like go upstairs and shop. It was just like very like um, real like barbarians at the gate stuff. And it was really fun. But, um, uh, I was working just, this is like 2006, 2007, which is a real M and a boom. And I was working at like the hardest working M and a law firm. And so I was just doing hundred hour weeks and never sleeping and like my body was breaking down and so I had to leave and I didn't have time to look for a job, but someone who worked there who had left even before I did called me from Goldman Sachs. Being like, do you want a job? And I said, Is it better than this job? And he said, It's a little better than that job. And I said, What are the hours? And he told me the hours And he walked through like his daily schedule. And I was like, Yeah, that sounds a little better. I'm doing it. So then I went to Goldman uh, and like knowing nothing about anything, like I was like, I went to this weird desk that did corporate equity derivatives, which I couldn't have told you what that meant like a week after I started. And uh, I did that for like four years. And um, I really liked it. Like, I learned a lot, but you know, you start in investment banking and you're like doing Excel and like kind of figuring things out. And then you end up like as a vice president, like getting on planes and meeting corporate treasurers and being like, hey, here's the rate you could get in the convertible bond market and hire the kids, you know? And like, I I was never never good at that and I didn't like flying. So I didn't want to keep doing that. And again, did not have a good way to look for a job and did not really know what I did want to do. But I'd always sort of thought I want to be a writer one day without ever writing anything, and uh, and so I um, I basically tried to quit without another job lined up, and my boss was like, no, 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 don't quit now. Like, take a leave of absence. Like, we'll, we'll give you some vacation or something. And then Breaker was hiring, and like I kind of knew some of the people there, and and I just like sent in my like dumb application, and they're like, sure, whatever, come here. So then I quit to go do that.
0: I have to pause the story here if you had never done any writing how was deal breaker gauging your uh, ability to work for them a- as a writer
2: well um i did like send like a sample packet where they were like write some blogs and so I, like stayed up all night and wrote some blogs right um i also uh a friend of mine was like one of their sister sites called above the law is like the law site and like a good friend of mine was was like kind of the lead writer there and so he, like he was like yeah this guy's okay but then also like the bar there was kind of low because uh, the way that Dealbreaker works is that the commenters are really mean to you. And if you suck at it, you'll quit after like a month. So um, they're like, yeah, sure, come for a month. Like, who cares, right? Like, if you suck, you'll leave. Um, so I don't think that like they were super invested in, in me necessarily the first day. Um, and then I kind of figured it out on, on the job.
0: I'm curious about what your first like 30 attempts were like, like what was it like, like building the muscle of being able to like turn out uh, writing on this topic. And, and I'm also curious, like coming from that background to where like the commenters were very loud. Uh, I, this is like a, I feel like a hallmark of sort of the, the Gawker era of um, media where like like the commenting was like 50% of the experience. Um, how do you feel like sort of having a, like a lot of instant feedback crafted what what you
2: became as a writer? Uh, I'll take the second question first. I, um I didn't read the comments it was it was bad uh i was like i was like i should read the comments but i just i'm not i'm too fragile so no when i started there it was just me and and best levin who had been kind of running the site for a long time and who's this sort of great genius of like comedy in general and like financial comedy in particular so she would read the comments and be like you're doing good it's okay (laughs) like she would she would like if anyone was like here's a factual error she'd like flag it for me but otherwise i wouldn't read the comments um no i mean when i started like like Bess was like this great genius, and the site was sort of beloved because of her. And it was like it like had some like sort of like gossip and like news about bonuses and news about layoffs, but it was like largely a financial comedy site where like she would write like jokes about stories. Um, and so that was kind of what I tried to do. Um, and I, yeah, I was like trying to be Bess essentially, right? Like I had sort of grown up on internet writing, and like you know, I liked Gawker and I liked. Like the sort of long run of Dealbreaker, and like particularly the Best Levin version of Dealbreaker, and so I was sort of trying to do that and like write snarky jokes about financial stories, and I did that for like a week, and I was like, this is really dark. this is really hard. And Best is like, why don't you write about like something that you know about, like some like some financial story where you like? And so I started to do a little of that, and like people like, oh, this is good, and like I said, okay, so like there's like some 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 this is like literally within the space of like a week or two, there were like clear rewards to like writing like a little bit nerdier and a little bit more technical and a little bit less like trying to make jokes. And so that's kind of what those first 30 attempts were it was like, sort of like, like there's the, the dial is kind of turned all the way over to jokes. And then I kind of turned the dial more towards like technical and like that, you know, like I didn't get the, the sort of immediate feedback from the comments in the sense that I didn't read the comments, but um, you get the immediate feedback of like writing every day and being like, this felt good. This felt not good, right? So, like, you, the, the, there was a sort of like fairly rapid evolution to like stuff that I felt like I could do, and not like struggle to have come up with jokes, you know.
0: Maybe not like in the early days, but like certainly now, and you know, since you've been doing the column at uh, at Bloomberg, uh, I've interchangeably used the word column and newsletter. I don't know what the difference between a column and a newsletter.
2: Yeah, I mean, I can tell you, like, like I was, I was, you know, at Dealbreaker, I was a blogger. And when I got hired at Bloomberg, I was essentially a blogger slash columnist, where I wrote, you know, zero to two pieces a day that were sort of standalone pieces and got published whenever and got pushed out on the web. And at some point, I was like, "What if I did a newsletter?" This was like in the glory days of like Today and Tabs, and I was like, "I'm going to do that." And it wasn't really, like initially it was like, I would write like one paragraph about five different stories. And then like, it just, that became my only output and I, the, it got longer, you know? Um, so like I've been a blogger in some capacity for like, I don't know, like 11 years, but like actually having a email newsletter that went out to people's email is like maybe seven years old, something like that. I
0: guess actually that sort of dovetails with where I was going with the question, which is like, so now that you have a newsletter, you know, that a set group of people read that newsletter or at least receive that newsletter every day. And as I understand it and sort of the impression I've gotten from like following you on Twitter and seeing people you're interacting with is like a lot of people who work at Goldman Sachs and on Wall Street uh, read the newsletter. In fact, there's sort of like a culture of people reading the newsletter and responding to it and talking to each other. What's it like for you to be like, Sort of covering these industries, but knowing that they are also like an audience for the newsletter, and that the you know the real people involved are probably going to see your writing uh, on what they're doing.
2: You know, I mean, it, it like it it makes me want to get things right because if I get them wrong, a knowledgeable person will make fun of me, or not. I mean, they send me a very polite email being like, "Oh, you got this a little bit wrong." I'm like, um, it makes me not want to be a dick. Uh, like, I write a lot about people who have been, um, you know, gotten in trouble with the SEC or the Justice Department. And like, like a surprising subset of them will email me. And often they'll, like, often I will have made fun of them. And they'll be like, that was pretty fair. And I'm like, oh, okay, good. I I have a couple of people who I've written about who are like, really mad at me. But like, it's, it's surprisingly uncommon, like, even among people I've made fun of, and and, like, who've gone to prison. Um, But I'm conscious of that. I try to not like, like just be cruel to people and particularly like people who have been arrested. I try to like not just you know pile on their problems. So those are the main things. I mean, I don't know. It's 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 weird. Like, you know, at Dealbreaker, there was like there was a real sense of like, you know, there there was a really active commenter community that again, I didn't know it didn't usually read the comments, but I did after a while. Um and there was a real sense that like what you were doing was like like part of the product was like creating this community of, of like people who are like deal breaker readers and like who worked on Wall Street. And like, so we would like cover vending machine challenges where like, you know, some junior analyst on a trading desk would get, you know, paid a thousand dollars if he ate one of every item in the vending machine. And like they'd send us frequent updates and we'd like write about them. And like, people yeah, you know, like there's like, a sort of like sense of being the water cooler and I don't have that. Right. But like, I do have this like community of readers who are, are, you know are all reading it around the same time and like that feels nice but I don't I don't know that it like I don't feel like beholden like I don't feel beholden to be nice to anyone except in the sense of like not you know not being like a jerk um and in terms of getting it right like I I don't I don't know like the part of it is that the, the the readership is like diverse enough that like it doesn't like make sense for me to like carry water for Goldman Sachs or whatever, you know. Like it's just like I have a lot of readers at a lot of different places, um, and to the extent I'm like too nice to to some financial institution, like someone on the other side of the trade at another financial institution will email me and be like, "Yeah, you let those guys off easy," you know. So
0: there's a certain degree to which I think for people who cover like sort of thinking like a system, that the newsletter is a really good format because you're getting to check in like sort of daily from all these different angles of a larger system and in a way where like, look, I'm, I'm not going to read a 400 page book about like how the finance world works. I I'm willing to read a few thousand words every day and kind of see a new little piece and see how some of the larger puzzle pieces fit together. And so the process of, of reading over years is sort of like building up this knowledge base where I actually enjoy reading it more now because I understand it better because something I read, Two years ago, I feel this way about your newsletter and uh, shout outs to Noah Smith. I also really enjoy his newsletter. And it's like they're they're kind of like larger works that are being contributed to every day. Do you think of like the larger body uh, of your work?
2: I I do. I, I don't think of it clearly. Like, people, people are like, you should just do a, like you should do a book that's a collection of your greatest hits. I'm like, I don't think that works, but like, I wish like I could do something with this larger body. Um, no, I do think about it. I mean, like, I, you know, I link constantly to myself, which is annoying. Um, but right. I mean, like to me, I feel like there's like, you know, some, there's like some themes and some like conceptual takes on like how the financial system works. And then there's like daily updates that are like, here's an example. Here's an example. Here's an example. Right. And so, I can't write like the explanation that everything is securities fraud every time I write about everything being securities fraud, right? Like I have to be like, most of you have read this before, you know, and like I'll link to it and I'll like maybe do a one sentence summary, but I'm not going to be like, this is the argument, you know, because it's like, come on, man, like how many times am I going to type that? Are you going to read it? Um, so there is there is like a like an extent to which like I do try to write things that are clearer to people who are coming to it for the first time, and particularly like you know, like the first section there'll be like a long conceptual like explanation of something I, like that like. I would hope that like a person who's never heard of me could read that and be like, "Oh, this is interesting, um but no, a lot of it is like is like a one sentence. I say this a bunch of times. here's another example, you know, um, and so it's definitely like uh I think it is I think it is more fun to read if you read it every day or at least many days.
0: Are there any sort of larger projects that you've dreamt about doing or do you? want to do anything different than coming out with this newsletter. It must be difficult once you've sort of found a format that works really well for you to think about doing anything other than that format.
2: Yeah. I'm really tired, but like, I really like the newsletter format. Like it's hard to do it every day or four days or whatever, but I really like it. It's like, it kind of fits my like metabolism. Like I, like I would have a hard time writing a weekly column or whatever. Right. And I really like being in people's inboxes every day. I really like sort of the immediate feedback. I really like if I say something that I'm like, Oh, I like missed the nuance there. I can just write it tomorrow. You know, um, it's really, it's a good format for me. And it seems to be working and like the, the you know, <laughs> continue to be in this weird newsletter boom where people like getting newsletters. And so I'm, I'm happy to do it. So I don't really like have a, sort of strong desire to change. I do feel like I ought to write a book because like I ought to have written a book. Um and I do think that like like where I'm coming from for a book would be something like, you know, those like conceptual framings of like financial topics that begin some newsletters and like trying to take a further step back and try to and try to explain like a large chunk of the financial system in some way that is conceptual and intuitive and accessible to people without a lot of background knowledge, but that also tells people in finance something about themselves where they can be like, "Oh, I hadn't thought about it that way, but like stepping back to a high level, like that's, that's, that's right. Um, that's kind of like the, the, the dream for a book project. Um, but like, I haven't written any of it yet. So, you know, um, basically I like wake up and type in a box and, uh, and I do that every day and that's still pretty fun for me.
0: Thank you so much for this interview.
2: I, I really appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you. This was fun. I hope I was okay.
0: How's the long form podcast? Thanks very much to my guest Matt Levine. Thanks to my co-hosts Evan Ratliff and Max Linsky. Thanks to our editor on this episode, Seth Kelly. Thanks to our intern Susan Peterson. Thanks to everyone over at Fox Media. And I just want to send another, another request that you help bump Evan Ratliff's podcast Persona to number one on the charts download it today. I will be listening along. Find me on Twitter. We could discuss it together. We can start a little uh, book club on the topic. Again, Persona. Search for it in the podcast app of your choice.